and welcome. This is Locate Negotiate. We're talking real estate with John Gibson, Managing Director, Locate Negotiate. And Gibbo, you're looking resplendent. Last time out, you were a little bit under the weather, mate. Yeah, I'm feeling better. How's the glow? Well, as I said, I said you're looking resplendent. Mate, every time I see you, you're remo- I'm going to start calling you Benjamin Button. You dye your hair grey? No, mate. No, no. But we are here to talk real estate, are we not? We are. Okay. No, a very serious property show here. Kind of, except let's say it from the top. We have a very special guest and a, a first time <laughs> on the show. Got a female. Correct. And that's about where we'll leave it for now. But you must join us for our special guest on Locate Negotiate. Uh, she will be a star. Well, she is a star. Oh, she is. Yeah. Goes yeah. without doubt. It's a crazy world out there. It's a crazy world out there. Yeah, what's happening in Ukraine right now? It's it's horrific, isn't it? You know, so with Putin, only one thing is predictable about him is his unpredictability. Yeah, yeah, and that's a worry. It certainly is, and the impacts back here in Australia. Well, impact back home. Um, obviously, we're seeing it at the the petrol bowser. Yeah, that's apparent right now. Yeah, uh, the the impacts. I guess we haven't felt yet, mm-hmm. or what the impacts are at home and abroad. Um, I guess it's that will all come out in the wash. And the effects on the, the greater world economy. We just don't know if this thing will escalate or, or or scale down at some stage, but our thoughts, prayers and blessings with those people in the Ukraine. Yeah, it's I think we're going to, unfortunately, we think we're going to buckle in and it's going to be a bumpy ride for a while. Mm, mm, just, is, it, is it buckle in or buckle up? I mean, I've always said buckle up. Click, clack, front, back. Well, <coughs> interpretation, mate. All right. Where did you grow up? I grew up at Northmead. Is that sort of near North Shore? No, very much. No, oh, it's right. near, Par- near North I Parramatta. Know it is. I know it is. I went to school Great at people out there. Went to school at St Monica's at North Parramatta, and my mum's name's Monica. There, there you go. Fine, upstanding lady. She is indeed. It, mate, it is worrying times. It is worrying times. Um, but on on a brighter note, on a brighter note, what have you got for me? from John Gibson's oddball world of statistics. Well, I don't particularly like referring to this guy, Putin, Mm. but it's been a lot of media coverage in recent times about his extraordinary wealth Mm. and how he's accumulated it Mm. on a guy who probably earns 200 grand a year can have such extraordinary wealth is unbelievable. And there's been a, um, a lot of commentary in regards to his pretty much his castle i heard joe rogan talking about this castle on a podcast last night yeah well they reckon it cost a billion dollars to build a billion dollars to build Mm. but the palace of versailles Mm. outside paris yeah they reckon to rebuild that it's estimated it'd cost between 200 and 300 billion dollars to build it today yeah just yep. amazing. Just amazing. Yeah, I, I don't think they'd be. I guess I won't be building a palace anytime soon. I'll stick to Castle Hill Towers. Mate, you're going all right. I've seen your balance sheet, mate. Don't give up on your dreams. You might be half a chance. I don't think so. You own the Shire. You own the Shire. You've you've got a chance there to do something on, oh, yeah, on the wish. water. I oh. wish. Magnificent Expe- spot it is. Been exponential growth down there. Absolutely. Now, Absolutely. have you heard of this guy? Who? Gusto Eiffel. Well, he built a tower. He did. Thank you. 
He did. He was. He didn't know his name was Gustav, though. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mate, do now. That's right. So you know, he built a tower called the Eiffel Tower in, in France. Yes, John. Paris. You been yes. there? You heard of that? I haven't been there. No. Yeah. So when he he designed it and constructed it, and but he built a secret apartment up the top, which is about ninety square meters. You're saying there's a penthouse on top of the Eiffel Tower? Yeah, I believe there is. About 90 square metres. No, it's not huge. But I'm sure it was fairly elaborate for its day when it was built. Yeah. But it were got and can out. You hire, can you hire it? Well, they a lot of people tried to hire VIPs and yeah. some royalty, yeah. you know, to go in for a weekend and pay big big dollars, apparently up to mm-hmm. $25,000 on today's standards, mm-hmm. just to do an overnight but um, he never he never rented it out or did a what they call a uh, Airbnb. Did they call it back then Airbnb? No, they didn't. Yeah, but uh, um, but he did. But he did have some friends, um, some pretty renowned, you know, not renowned, but very uh, friends, which were very influential in the world. Like who? Well, do you know the guy who invented the electric light bulb? Oh, there you go. The light bulb. That was Mr. Thomas Edison. He's smarter than you look. It's actually written here, but I would have said he was electricity because electricity related to the light bulb. Now, this is bulb. where you should stop. Okay, I will. I might ask our special guest because she'll have a quirky answer to that. Mm. I have no doubt at all. This is, you know what? There's a lady sitting at the head of the table here today at Paris Media. We've got Costa in the house. We've got Harry Paris Media head honcho. Mia Johnson is over there. And I just very impromptu, Mia Johnson, EA, EA to John Gibson, Managing Director, Locate, Negotiate, also niece, keeping it in the family. Mia, do you come up with this oddball stuff, these statistics? And I know you're not a microphone, but you can you can yell out to me. Do you, are you part of this oddball scheme that he these stats he throws at me every? No. Oh, isn't she? Oh, she's very, very smart. This is Talking Real Estate with John Gibson, Managing Director, Locate Negotiate, locatenegotiate.com.au. Welcome back. It's Talking Real Estate. John Gibson. I'm Mark Warren, your co-host. Gibbo, we're talking during the week. Australia has the biggest homes in the world. No, they used to up Uh until recent times. Uh But now US have taken over the title. Uh But they're building, you know, the homes, those McMansions they're building out west. Love a McMansion. Oh, don't we love them? uh, I think the average size is about 248 square metres. Yeah. I mean, we were building the biggest houses in the world, but America, as they do, they've taken over the title again. Everything's bigger in Texas. It, mate. Yeah. Absolutely. But uh, you go northwest or you go southwest to Bosley Park and places like that. Oh, they're everywhere. Wow. You go down the south coast and up the coast. And then that gets regional. You're on property. But moving on. No. There's been a lot of subdivisions up there. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been a lot of rural land's been re- subdivided and mm. carved up in the smaller blocks. Okay, and mansions. Give you you've been in the property game a long time. I think you, you, you went straight into property out of school, did you not? I did straight out of school. Yeah, at a cadetship. Yeah, um, LJ Hooker back in the day. What? Who was your mentor's name? We've mentioned Rod him a couple. Holter. Pardon? Rod Holter. He's up in the sky with the old man. Yeah, he's a good man. Good man. And he was your mentor. Yeah. 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 So. Real good guy, and uh, 
It was never a dull moment back in real estate, back when I first started. Give us a couple of offbeat, funny stories over the journey. You mentioned well, a couple to me during the week. Well, it was um, back in the early days, you know, we used to, uh, I mean, when I got first into property management, yeah, the it was fairly rough and ready. I mean, if you didn't, if any tenants didn't pay their rent, mm. what they, what would happen is you get a notice to quit. Oh, I thought you were going to send the henchmen. Well, basically, you get a notice to quit, <laughs> and then you go through this process of seven days of not paying your rent, and yeah. then you get a uh, an order. Yeah. And basically, you go around there, and people their gear would be thrown on the street. Wow. Change the locks, throw it out in the street. Facts. And that happened pretty quickly. I mean, you'd have to go through the right procedures. Yeah. But it was no, like, you got second or third chances, this, that and the other. No real estate institute as such. No, it was... Well, you know what I mean. No, there's was, no, the was, processes was were different. It was out of their power, but it yeah. was um, like the Fair Trading Department, Fair Trading. Yeah. And, but um, it was, yeah, it was basically... you. you go around there i mean you didn't know any different back then mm. but looking back now you go well it's pretty harsh pretty Very. harsh yeah you know, i mean yeah so um, you had the department of fair trading but you certainly didn't have the processes that are in place today that very much protects the tenant uh in on many occasions oh, absolutely but I, there was another occasion where i went to a uh, uh property management um I went to a unit doing inspection, just a quarterly. I think it was a six monthly inspection on this apartment. It was. Mm. I've opened the door. It's got a double deadlock on it, and um, I'm in there, and the door slams. Yeah. So I'm now my keys are in the door, and yeah. I'm locked in the unit. Yeah. Uh, and I'm in the unit for about. I couldn't get out. You so had I'm a mobile, no door. mobile phone. I had. No, it was, we didn't have mobile phones back then. He didn't even have a telephone in the in the apartment. So I'm locked in this apartment for about five hours until this guy gets home. What a what, what what work thing. When he opened the door, I must hugged him and he almost had a heart attack. What did your work think? <laughs> well, I wonder obviously where I was. Yeah. But, uh, Search party? Well, I can't remember that, but uh, there was some questions asked where I'd been. I think they think I'd... You locked, locked yourself I'd, in. I bundied off for the day. You couldn't find the house phone? There wasn't any house phone. All right. There wasn't any house phone. A vacant a vacant property. Yeah, yeah. Work experience. You told well, me yeah, you had look, some fun with some work experience well, kids. I, yeah. You know, back in my thirties when I started my own real estate business, a couple of guys and uh, we um, we used to always get work experience people coming in and you know, the local we knew a lot of people and they want their kids to come through and give them some experience working in real estate so we used to always have some fun with them teaching the ropes you know what it was all about but um we used to always send them on little errands one of them was we used to go to send them up to the post office to get the mail but obviously ask the girl behind the desk for some um tax evasion forms tax um, evasion forms yeah we used to get them done so these kids that. are in year 10 at school <laughs> and you, you sent them to the post office we used to ask them to get some tax evasion forms and they'd come back with the mail and they'd say with a straight face, oh, the lady said they've run out of tax evasion forms. Can you come back tomorrow? <laughs> John Gibson, you haven't changed. So, John, you're off to Queensland this week for a look around? Yeah, we do quite a bit of work up there. So, mm. I mean, I hadn't been up for a while. I was going to go up two weeks ago. The floods was an issue up there. So I put a hold on to that. But we're doing a fair bit of work all the way from Brizzy up to Sunshine Coast especially. So yeah. I'm just going for a grand tour up there, you know, uh, Scoping it out, yeah. Um, you've got to get on the ground. You've got to get the feel for the areas, yeah. And c keep up to speed, basically. 
the devastating floods in Lismore and Ballina, Brisbane areas, will will they impact the property prices up there without sounding too ignorant? Absolutely. Yeah. I had a client four weeks ago who was who was wanted me to engage my services to uh, this is prior to the floods um, to look for some uh, property just outside Ballina area, mm-hmm. and um, he was very serious. Uh, about buying a property he was asking me um, to engage my service to help him out with it and um, he went stone cold mm. on the idea uh, now so he's looking at other areas um, you know his north coast is out uh, is it going to affect prices in short yes okay insurance premiums will they be on the up well there's now three things are certain in life mm-hmm. that's death taxes mm. and that Insurance premiums are going to go up. Mm. And with all the fires, now the floods, storms, everything like that, I've spoken to under, uh, underwriters. We live in a sunburnt country. It's just going a to be... A land of sloping yeah. plains. Who, who wrote that poem? Mia, who wrote that poem? You said it right. We might be able to work it out. Oh, I'm going That's to... That's your bit of homework for next one. Yeah, I want you to I recite I should know it. that. You should recite it. I should know stuff. that. Can I have my phone? Uh, yeah, yeah, I should know that. Dorothy McKellar, a land of sweeping plains, of rugged mountain ranges, of droughts and flooding rains. When you're talking insurance, just a little segue, Gibber. You've got a good memory. No, well, that's Google. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Um, I'm looking at your notes here. Building costs and underinsured people or not insured, uh, tough times. Well, a lot of people have lost their properties, mm-hmm. and whether it's through fire or flood. Mm-hmm. For instance, in fire areas, there's going to be... B- the building codes have changed, so the people who lost their house is now b- um, rebuilding, but finding they're going to build it to a fire code, yeah. which makes it more expensive for these people to build. So if they're underinsured, they're going to have it, find it very difficult to build their house they want. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them had to reduce their footprint, and the quality of fit-out has to be a less... I guess, better quality than what they're used to. We talk about interest rates going up and how this will impact the market. Um, now you throw this war on top. Are you seeing any changes in the marketplace? Well, I'm very busy at the moment. There's plenty mm. going on. There's plenty of transactions in business. Mm. Um, you told me you'd never been busier. Well, it's just yeah, super busy. There's plenty. Who's your advertising agency? <laughs> <laughs> but <Okay>. like... Yeah, <laughs> It's funny because at the moment, blue a lot of the blue chip areas, yeah. most of them are going well. North side, that's sort of, at the moment, the handbrakes come on a little bit up towards Motorvale, those sort of areas. Mm-hmm. The ones to watch are those sort of mortgage belt areas out the, out the west mm-hmm. where um, there could be a little bit of pain uh, down the down the track with that. Now, I've got some a little bit of tat, uh, stats here. Yeah. Um, the more affordable suburbs in the outer southwest have the worst mortgage stress mm-hmm. with about 75, 76% of borrowers, yeah. like in the Campbelltown sort of areas, um, Mount Druitt, Rudy Hill areas, are all sort of under a bit of mortgage stress at the moment. So if there's a bit of an increase in the rates, it's going to be interesting to see uh, what happens out there. You mentioned the eastern suburbs, the Shire still tracking well. Shire's going well. I think lack of stock yeah. has really uh, you know, kept things ticking along pretty well up there. Some 
Okay. What about the Golden West? There's plenty of activity going on in the Greater West as well. Part of Sydney also in and around the airport. Um, stock levels are, are still low in some areas you were, we were discussing in pre-production. Yeah, so by 2036, they're predicting an extra mm. 1.7 million people to work uh, to move into those Western Sydney, southwestern Sydney area to populate those areas. So around the airport, it's going to bring... There's going to be a lot of infrastructure built. There's going to be people uh, building all to support the airport, new businesses opening, new employment opportunities. So I think there's, uh, there's going to be a fair bit of growth down the track in those areas. I'm just looking at your notes here. Immigration has stalled, but it will ramp up again. Is there and a lot of those people will be moving to those areas. Okay. Is there still a push for people to move to regional areas, Gibbo? Up until December, January this year, it's come off the ball a little bit, mm -hmm. come off the pace. Yeah. But two years previous to that, yeah. it was like, it was incredible the amount of people who were moving to those areas. Mm -hmm. uh, people were just packing up and going out there because they could work from home. Yeah. Everyone was allowed to work from home. Yeah. It's going to be interesting moving forward because I know in the CBDs of Sydney, people start going back to work. There's more activity starting to happen in there. And yep. I think that businesses, small to medium or large, will start winding themselves back, okay. uh, winding people back into there. Yep. So I think mostly where people have, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of businesses going to give opportunities for their staff to work from home, but I'm not sure if all of them want them at home full time. Yeah. So some people, they might try and start winding people back in. So that might put the handbrake on that uh, in terms of people moving to those areas. Okay, this is Talking Real Estate, John Gibson, your co-host Mark Warren, proudly brought to you by locatenegotiate.com.au. Many people would have worked in an office or, you know, the, the CBD. Um, what's happening with office leasing? Is there any pickup in the city? And, and talking of leasing in the city, it's interesting that we go back to Damien Keogh and he forecast and saw even back then that there would be more traction in the city as things open up. Is there a pickup in leasing in the city? Oh, it's been stop-start, but yeah. at the moment there's definitely be more traction, more more activity in the city, more businesses. What will happen is, and I've, we do tenant representation, moving businesses around in the city, helping them to negotiate leases. So mm. we are seeing it firsthand that um, businesses uh, start winding back people in, as I've said, mm. and what they're doing is is that there's opportunities for businesses to, or I think they're reducing their footprint in the city, because yeah. they're never going to have... They're never going to have their full-time staff back there at any one time. So you don't think so? Oh, well, I, I, if they've got 100 people, they'll probably be you know, 50, 60 people back there at any one time. Um, I don't think you're going to find there's going to be 100 there at any one time in most businesses. I'm living around the city. I'm seeing a lot more activity. Certainly not what we've seen in years no, it's, gone it's by. It's still not but there yet, but no. it's a long way to go. Th there's, some, there's some good initiatives bringing people back to this. Is that the word you're looking for? Incentives, initiatives, yeah. government initiatives and incentives. What's happening is is that people are looking for opportunities in there yeah. to either downsize, and if they downsize, that they're going to be able to... People are offering uh, 
better incentives. Prior to the pandemic, people all sort of incentives were around about 15%. Um, now they're up around 35%. What, in, what I mean by incentives is it's people negotiating a, a good rates on top of the... Are there bargains rates. right now to get yes, these long-term? Yes, people are yeah. negotiating good rates, yeah. um, but also getting rent-free periods, contribution to fit-outs, uh, all those sort of things from the landlords. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's, there's a bit of supply at the moment. People are, are, are smelling that and um, trying to lock into uh, leases at the moment. But there's bigger bid. People who have bigger footprints are downsizing as well. Okay. Yeah. So we don't have a, but it'll be. You see, pretty growth. sure in the short term we're not going to have another lockdown. Long term, who knows? Hmm. Trying to get your answer. You see growth, but there's a few ifs along the way. Gibbo, after this break, a very special guest and looking forward to a chat with her right after this. We're talking real estate with John Gibson and we'll be back right after this. LocateNegotiate.com.au Property Advisors. John Gibson's Locate Negotiate, buyer's agent, seller's advocacy, consultancy and research service, tenant and business representation, you simply go to locatenegotiate.com.au. This is Talking Real Estate with John Gibson. Well, I might put my ring announcer's hat on with a professional CV that reads this way. Our special guest, Talking Real Estate with John Gibson, is an absolute showstopper. A quirky sense of humour. In fact, give an inch, uh, she could take a yard. Respectfully, somewhat flamboyant, sometimes polarising. For me, extremely funny. Uh, Gibbo, a a master of self-deprecating humour. A talented journalist of 20 years now. Now, if Dr Google's up to speed, I know she was born in Canberra. It says raised in Jakarta. I'll come back to that, Indonesia. Uh, I can say about two words. Um, uh, attended 16 different schools with the parents very much on uh, very much on the move supporting her father's career in the Australian Army. Uh, the daughter of a major general and now senator and great Australian. She cut her teeth in community television before landing a, a win television gig in Wollongong. I've got a story there, but it only lasted eight weeks. Uh, and now it's Brecky Radio on Today FN's The Morning Crew with Husey and Ed and our yet-to-be-named special guest. Have you got any ideas yet, Gibbo? I've got a fair idea, mate. Uh, a Sky News contributor. She's at home in front of the camera. Daily Telegraph's columnist. She spent 11 years as a news anchor and sports presenter with Nine. Very much a mainstay with the wide world of sports family. Tennis, netball, uh, even anchored some boxing. And she did great as she does. The first woman to host the footy show. So very much a pioneer in that space. And moving along, she crash-tackled her way into the continuous call team's commentary box and network stations around Australia and uh, showed, her, showed me there her versatility and her creativity behind the microphone and the ability to push the line, if you like, or to push the envelope uh, on a more serious, passionate, very passionate about online safety, campaigning for new laws to protect Australians from disgusting trolls and those laws now introduced into Parliament just last year. First and foremost, though, a working mum to little Eliza. John Gibson, it's a very big welcome. Locate, negotiate to Erin Molan. Thank you so much. 
Jen, hello. Wow, that was incredible. I'm going to get a copy of that and use that on just for everything. Essentially, I'm going to play it every morning if I wake up and I'm tired and I'm not feeling particularly good. I'm just going to play it. That mm. was really lovely and, and actually accurate, which is, yeah, something else in this day and age. So well done and thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be on. Yeah, thanks, Aaron, for coming on. Much appreciated. Um, early starts. What time do you kick off the day? What time's... What times does the, the alarm go off? Look, between 4 and 4.30, depending on how much effort I'm planning on putting into my appearance. <laughs> so <laughs> if I wake up and I think I really can't be bothered. You must dream I of do. alarm clocks going off, do you? <laughs> I do. But I tell you what, I, I do sleep with my three-and-a-half-year-old. So generally I'll be woken well and truly before my alarm by spot spot. Spot, spot, which is her wanting a bottle, even though she's nearly four. Mm. Yeah. So, look, it's a combination of dreaming of alarms and my daughter. Is that tough, <laughs> so, getting up that early? Do you find it oh, tough? Look, it, it is, but it's all relative, right? I mean, I've always worked incredibly hard. Hard work is its really the only thing that I know, and, and, and my dad was exactly the same throughout his career. And, and I'm doing something I love. I'm doing something with people who are incredible human beings you know if you were working with a dickhead it would be impossible to do those kind of hours you know <laughs> excuse my language but if you're you're spending four or five hours a morning five days a week with someone that you didn't get along with or that that wasn't particularly pleasant you couldn't do it but because i work with amazing people both on air on the radio and behind the scenes our whole team are amazing you know it's great and, and it means that i still get to feel like i'm a full-time mum as well which is really important yeah. to me so i feel like i work when Eliza's still asleep and then I get home kind of around 10 o'clock and, and go back to being a mum. And then, you know, if I'm doing a couple of nights a week on Sky News, that's generally after she goes to bed. So, look, the hours are, are tough and they're long days and, and yeah. you know, I'm tired, but I'd, I'd much rather do that and feel like I'm, I'm still a full-time mum than, than be away from a, you know, like a lot of my friends have to be with nine to five jobs. They're away from their kids five days a week. Yeah. Is, is Husey loud first thing in the morning? Look, he, he, <laughs> I mean, on occasion, absolutely, but no, not really. Look, he's a, he's amazing. He's one of the most professional, hardworking people I've ever encountered, and and he's brilliantly smart. He's so quick. He's obviously very, very funny, but he's sharp as a tack too. And he, he's very, you know, in terms of prepping for the show and and what kind of direction we're taking and and what topics we cover. He's he's really in there, and he, he's quite. He's quite sensible and pragmatic, which might surprise people, <laughs> you know, early in the morning. But no, he's great. And look, he's, this is not his first radio. He's done Brecky Radio for years, you know, over the past 20 years or so. So no, he, he's, he's delightful actually in the morning. Sometimes though, yes, loud. Just digressing, coming back one step just quickly. So I we've got a mutual mate, Mark Guy, MG, Breakfast Radio. I think... I think he does a lot of remote work these days from home at the ranch in Penrith. However, come on, come on, be honest. You said you go home and become a mum. Is there a little nap time? You've got a little window that you have left to, have to oh, Absolutely. Yeah. So I get home and I, look, as I said, she's nearly four. Yeah. But I still manage to get her to sleep with me and it's incredible. Once you get her down, like she's fighting it much more than she used to. Yeah. But I would die without my daily nap. So we'll, we'll go to bed maybe midday, yeah. so midday one. And if I get her down, it's maybe four out of every five times she'll sleep. She'll sleep for two and a half hours. It's amazing. The night's not so great, <laughs> but I, I feel like I, I would not survive if I didn't have that nap. So, yeah, absolutely. I still get a nap. <laughs> I'm not going to lie about that. Good so, girl. Aaron, yeah, one last one. 
Yeah. Erin, winding back the clock, Canberra is where you were born. Can you, yes, can you run through what life was like growing up in Canberra back then? Well, see, I, I spent maybe three or four different periods of growing up in Canberra, but because Dad was in the Army, we moved around all the mm. time. So went to 16 different schools and lived in cities all over Australia and overseas. You mentioned Jakarta, Indonesia during the introduction. So, look, Canberra was, was amazing. I, I love it and I love it still and I'd love to at some stage in my life, end up kind of back there or on the outskirts like my mum and dad are at the moment. They're in a beautiful little place called Royala, which is about half an hour out of Canberra's city centre. Uh-huh. And it was just, yeah, I, I've just, I love I love Lake Valley Griffin. I think it's one of the most aesthetically pleasing cities in the world. I, you know, I know it cops a bad rap every now and then, but I've always loved Canberra and I love, you know, it's, it's all the only home I've ever really known because we did move around so much. The granny and grandpa had their place there in Lyons in the ACT and that was the one constant in many years of moving around. So, yeah, it, it was a great place, a really safe place and, and just a lovely real community feel to it that, yeah, it doesn't always kind of get the wraps it deserves. Actually, plenty to do down there. I've been down there a few times on weekends. There's a host of things to do, good restaurants It's actually and amazing. And- like it, yeah, and it's really improved, I think, over the past decade or so. Like, you know, before I think it was basically Mooseheads and, you know, the private bin were your two options, but now it's expanded significantly and a lot of really classy joints. And, you know, there a lot of people go to campus business, like they see a lot of politicians, a lot of public servants. So there's a real kind of high-end eating scene and, and bar scene as well as kind of a lot of just, you know, pubs and, you know, which is more my kind of cup of tea, if I'm being honest with you. But, yeah, it's, it's great. And then, of course, you've got the museums and Questacon and the War Memorial and Parliament House and all that kind of stuff that I'm a real, real nerd for. How did you, like, it was a real nomadic military family upbringing. So how did you, did you obviously didn't know any better. I mean, did you, was it a good, did you like being that sort of, getting up, packing up and going away and living somewhere else? Oh, look, at the time it was it was hard, absolutely. And I think, you know, when you're younger, not so much. But as you go into high school years, it's really hard to move around and to have to make new friends. And yeah, as you get absolutely. older, people are much more in their cliques. And so that was really tough. But I look back now and so many of, of the skill sets that you develop just through sheer necessity, having to start new schools all the time, you know, start high school four or five different times, you know, that is one of the skill sets that, that I use every day in my job now and that yeah. enabled me to do the kind of job that I do and, and to be resilient. You know, you go yeah. somewhere, you don't have friends, you, you go to the library or you sit in the toilet for a lunch break and, you know, it's character building. It's awful at the time and when you're young and, and that's your whole world, it, it's quite miserable. But when I look back, I think about the different ways that I had to counteract that, the ways you have to put yourself out of your comfort zones. You know, if people aren't being particularly nice to you, you develop a bit of thick skin and, all things that I've had to rely upon in life and that have made me, I guess, better equipped to deal with some of the challenges I've had over the years. So I look back now, I speak another language, perhaps Indonesia. So look, it, it was an incredible wow. upbringing. It doesn't suit everyone. You know, some is that kids. Teramakashi? Teramakashi? No, I'm stopping there because you've, you've changed subject. Uh, You've, John, I'm stopping you right there, right? Well, Aaron did mention Indonesia. I just yeah, had to. Well, it, I got told my first trip to Bali, which was for a great friend of ours' wedding. It was come if you can. Freddie was there, big crew. <laughs> now they just told me to write down tear my car seat. I said tear my car seat, and he said, "Say it quickly." Tear my car seat. It's tear my car seat. Am I right, Aaron? 
Look, look, I reckon John was probably oh, had a better fluency. Oh. <laughs> look, ah. it's Prima Kasi is, is, is the way you say it. But Munkin Saipikir and Munkin Harus Balajar Siddiqui Lagia Karna Kidat Lalu Bagus is what I would say to you both. You might need to study a little bit more because neither of you are particularly impressive, I, impressive is I, what I said. Yes, Mark, how do you say beer in Indonesia? Beer. Oh, you got it right. Only <laughs> because I'm, look- <laughs> I'm looking at your notes. I, oh, right, okay, I had no okay. idea. I had no <laughs> idea. You spend time travelling most of the time in Australia or abroad. Obviously, Indonesia was a big part of it. Can you just talk yeah, us look, through look, the different places you went? Yeah, look, mainly mainly all over Australia on these military postings. Uh, and then Indonesia was two separate postings. So the first was kind of 90, 96. 95 to 98. So 98 was a very, very big year for Indonesia. So that was when the Suharto regime fell and, yeah. and President Suharto had been ruling that country for 30 years. He was incredibly corrupt. His kids, you know, owned every major piece of infrastructure in the country. And, and 98 was when the people there basically decided enough was enough and they mm. wanted, you know, democracy. They wanted a leader that they elected. They, they wanted an end to that, that rule. So to be there when that all occurred and it was, pretty scary. The riots were then, the Trisakti University shootings, there were people, thousands, hundreds of thousands in the street protesting riots, violence, the whole thing. And whilst it was scary, we got evacuated at the time because um, it was too dangerous for, for the kids to stay there. It was an incredible thing to witness and experience as a young person and, and to really be part of history, so to speak. And mm. it, it's probably what really sparked my interest in journalism and in, and in reporting and the media. Was, was that experience over there. So, yeah, it was it was amazing. And then to go back again at, at a later period was, was just phenomenal as well and, and to watch the country grow and still a lot of issues like there is all over the world, but just the most beautiful people you will ever encounter. I concur there. Just quickly, I, I uh, did a couple of flights to Singapore for Chris John, uh, who is a national hero of Indonesia, and then one in Jakarta, but it very much uh, knocked on my door in a personal manner trying to get through traffic and seeing what is real poverty, Erin. Absolutely. My goodness, darling, where mothers uh, uh, with babies that are sick and knocking on the window of the cab um, looking for money and then the cab driver telling me, Erin, don't give money because they're all taking it back and they're basically, what's the word, Um, collating funds from all of these mums with these little babies. Uh, and, going- oh, and, and look, it, yeah, and that, that that was told to us as well. And but but you know, I found it impossible. And I look at even now the amount of work I do with charities, and I reckon that that started from such a young age. Mm. When you're driving along and there are lepers begging on the street, there are mums with kids. Look, I, I don't care if they take it back somewhere and collate it. If you're begging on the street with your baby, yeah, you're not I'm in like a particularly you. good yeah. place. Oh, it, bro- know, so it broke my heart. It broke my heart. It was yeah. just the taxi driver saying, "So I don't care." I wound the window down. I just, I did, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. No, no. Um, well, see, my mum always tells this story. I, one of my first jobs in Indonesia was coaching gymnastics at the Jakarta International School, and I got paid in US dollars. And mum always talks about the fact that she would pick me up on whatever day I'd get paid my weekly pay packet, which was, you know, an envelope with cash in it. Mm. And she, she would say that we would never, ever get home with, with the envelope full because on the way home, Erin would just be sitting in the back with the window down, just giving it to every beggar. And I'm not saying I'm Mother Teresa, but you cannot help but be, when you're exposed to that kind of brutal poverty, you cannot help to be moved and want to, and want to help. And that's why I look at so many kids in Australia just have no idea they are alive when you go to places like Indonesia. And I, I'm so grateful 
to have seen that, even though it was awful and confronting and brutal at such a young age, to really feel so privileged to know how lucky I am to live in a country like Australia and to have the kind of upbringing that I have. Your work for charity and community is a whole different area. I left it off your pay for punch CV at the top. Um, I, I can't, no, well, to be honest, I can't keep up with it, right? I'm going to be honest, I can't keep up with it. Ben, you're not Mother Teresa. But, knife a lot of the time, to be uh, honest. You, near the car, but I, I'm incapable of saying no to anything that's a good cause, and there are a lot of good causes. So, yeah, yeah. yeah it's important work. Let, let's go back. Gibbo, you've got some facts and figures from Erin's original backyard. And I was going to ask her, but I can probably ask her later if she's got a Vikings helmet and with horns. <laughs> uh, I, I'd like to know that because she is a mad raider. Do you have a helmet with the horns? I don't have a helmet with the horns. I've got a lot of figurines that are wearing helmets with horns mm. and I've got a paper mache. No, I know it's always... Yeah, I could see it, some party putting on the Viking outfit, I think. <laughs> take us back to Erin's... Yeah, I haven't quite had that far yet. <laughs> okay, Gibbo, take us back to the... Well, back in 85, yeah. the medium house price in Canberra mm. was 90 grand. And for units, wow. it was 72 grand. And Canberra's medium price today is just under a million and fifty. Incredible, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's super popular. I mean, it's gone from... It's gone gangbusters the last... Yeah. That was 85. Five, ten years. You know. Wow. Just incredible wow. growth. Expanded, expanded incredibly. How did the career kick off? Your, your debut in the media, community television in Canberra. Was it always a passion? Yeah. Where did you pick up your little inkling? Okay, I can do this. Well, see, as I said, the, the kind of experience in Indonesia and even before watching, you know, the events of 98, we would make these little videos to send back to Granny and Grandpa. And I would always be the news anchor and my little brother would have to do weather. My sister would do entertainment. We'd do these full videos and send them back kind of updates on our lives because we obviously wouldn't see Granny and Grandpa for a year when we were overseas. So I I fell in love with with that element of of making television, you know, which was great fun and and debating. I always loved debating. I always loved writing. Writing was probably my first love and and writing for the Governor General when Sir Michael Jeffrey was in Government House in Canberra was probably yeah, one of my favourite jobs that I've ever had. And, and that coincided with getting my first job in community TV. So I'd seen an ad in the paper and went to an audition. I was awful. It was, it was you know, it was horrific. Uh, it was really unnatural, very stilted, uh, just, just really, really unimpressive. <laughs> I was 20 at the time. And for the next kind of six months, I remember sending an email to the producer of that network and it was called Channel Vision just saying I know that I will I didn't do well but please give me a shot I know I can do this and he basically ignored me until almost six months to the day and it was on my 21st birthday and he called me he said you know Erin it's Steve from Channel Vision I said oh Steve wow hi he said you know if I give you a two-minute segment on the food show will you leave me the beef alone (laughs) and I said absolutely (laughs) and it was my first real experience of not having much particular talent or ability but just annoying the crap out of someone so they gave me a shot and then once you get your shot you then have to perform and you then have to have to do a brilliant job because you don't get another chance and and that was yeah my first experience of that and I went in and within about three months of hosting most of their, their shows, doing sports shows, business shows. And as I said, it was a, a little community TV setup, but a brilliant learning ground. And I spent kind of three or four years there and then got the opportunity at Wind TV in Canberra, which was another just continually annoying oh. the crap out of them until they gave me a shot. And once I got there, it was the exact same story of trying to get to Metro, trying to get to Channel 9 and 100 rejection letters from 
every network in the country being told over and over, you're not good enough, your voice isn't good enough, your look isn't right. But you just, if you back yourself and you believe in yourself, I just kept pushing because I knew that I could do it really well and I knew that I wanted to do it was all I wanted to do. I, I wouldn't advocate that kind of approach if you want to, you know, do surgery or, or something like that. <laughs> I'm really good. I'm really good. Just give me a crack exactly. at I this. Myself. I know that I was really crap last week with that operation, but please give me another You do. Time. You just sort of keep so, knocking down the door, don't you, until someone <laughs> gives you a start. Okay. Prefer, a lot of people yeah. say. So you got some traction down there with, with Wynn. When did you get your start, like when you moved to Sydney? So that was after about three years at Winter then. I'd worked at Wagga Wagga, Canberra and Wollongong. And I was actually at Channel 10 in Melbourne doing a trial. Ah. They'd got me down for a week to do a trial in the sports department there. And I think it was day three of the trial and Darren Wick, the boss of news at Channel 9, I'd been in contact with Ken Sutcliffe and he'd sent me some wonderful kind of letters and feedback on some of my work and I'd put them up on my computer at WinTV and, and always referred to them. And I got a call from Wiki saying, you know, Ken had mentioned that, that I was a bit of an up-and-comer and that he saw something in me that wasn't particularly impressive yet, but that there was potential and that I should come and work in Sydney. And I, I kind of, it was, a, it was a tough decision because I, I was at Melbourne already and, and didn't know what might have happened there. But Wiki said, you know, come and Sydney is the best newsroom in the country. And I knew that was right. And, yeah, I took my shot and, and went. And 11 years later, there you go. So, so, so yeah, it was an incredible opportunity and so. one that, that wasn't easy and that didn't go to plan. And there were many setbacks once I got to Channel 9. But the resilience and, and that just show up every day, front up, show up, front up, regardless yep. of, of what happens, what you're, what you're faced with, what you need to overcome. You just keep showing up and you work your ass off and, you know, it, it all seems to work out in the end. So when you landed in Sydney, where were you living? I live in Willoughby. In fact, I, I, I lived so close to Channel 9. So I lived in a little unit, a two-bedroom unit that, with a housemate in Penkerville Street in Willoughby when I first moved there and I lived there for about three years and I managed and so that was about maybe oh, 500 metres from Channel 9 like you, you could just walk down the street and then I managed to do the impossible move even closer to Channel 9 yeah. and I moved on to Willoughby <laughs> Road which is about 100 metres from Channel 9 just on the corner of the road into another little apartment next to the survey where you turn onto our Tarman Road to go up to the old Channel 9 and I remember sitting because I would still drive which is so ridiculously embarrassing but I remember sitting in my car trying to turn out onto Willoughby Road most mornings and it would often take me 10 minutes to find a break in traffic thinking I could have walked there in about three. But, you know, it was, you know, the, the mean streets of Willoughby, right? It wouldn't have been safe for me to walk. <laughs> <laughs> that, little, that little street that backs on to the, the studios, there's little cottages yes. there. It's a wonder you didn't find it's one there. Down. Renowned for all the violence and danger. <laughs> but I'm clearly joking. <laughs> so, Aaron, you've yeah. been in Sydney for some time. Then you make a decision um, and take the plunge and buy a property. Yeah. So, uh, what led you to that? And why did you do it? And I think just look, having enough money to finally do it was yeah. the big thing. And you know, I wasn't making a lot of money for a long time in my early days at Channel 9. And when I say not making a lot of money, I mean, you know, you hear about the salaries of people in media mm. when they're very well established. But, but most people there, you know, make, make a, a fairly good or solid living, but you're not on millions and millions it's, of bucks. But for me, yeah. it was 
Yeah, for, for me it was, I was really, really bad with money when I was younger. Not bad, I just I just wasn't sensible. I didn't really save. I would I would live kind of week to week or month to month. I'd pay my rent, all my bills, and then essentially spend it. But when I, probably around 30, maybe 30 that I started seriously thinking about, you know, that I should be saving. And you know, I think I'd called mum and dad and, you know, asked for rent money. I thought, this is a bit embarrassing at 30. So that's when I kind of decided I needed to get a bit serious about about getting myself set up and buying a home. And I just started to earn, you know, better money at nine, which was great and, and felt like I was in a position, even though I was in Sydney and paying a fair bit for rent that I could, you know, start to make some inroads. So really just started saving, um, not doing a lot else. And it was basically as soon as I had enough for a deposit, um, I, I wanted to buy and I did. So I bought in Randwick, which was you know, I fell in love with the place straight away and I was with my ex-partner at the time and he wasn't so sure about it when we first went and saw it, but what I loved was the view and it had city views and it was a two-bedroom, two-bathroom, fairly new apartment above a bottle which yeah. ticked a lot of boxes for me. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good epicenter. It's a good epicenter there, isn't it? You know, cause it's, it's amazing close to there and across from the Bunnings and look at a fake bar cafe. It, it was just incredible and, and, you know, I was so, I just loved it. It was yeah, obviously the first home that I bought and, and where my daughter was born, it was where, not that it's worked out particularly well now, but it, it was, you know, my ex-partner uh, proposed to me in that place. So we, we hadn't even, you know, I'd, I'd bought it, but we hadn't kind of gotten the keys or anything yet. And he kind of went to the real estate agent, got the keys, took me up and proposed in the kitchen and said, you know, I want you to think about this every morning we wake up here. And so it was a really special, yeah. clearly it hasn't worked out that well now down the track, but it was a really special place with a lot of significance and obviously the place I took my daughter home for the first time she was she was born when we lived there so yeah it was there for kind of five years nearly which was yeah just just a, a wonderful I fell in love with Sydney a lot living yeah. there I, I'd struggled to settle in that much prior but yeah. I really fell in love with Sydney and with Randwick and, and that home yeah so overlooking so, Centennial yeah. Park there too oh, lovely spot. great oh, spot. yeah absolutely yeah. beautiful yeah close hey, to everything hey Erin so the whole yeah. buying experience, was this something that you decided to buy, obviously got some finance in place, did it all happen smoothly or did you sort of find it challenging, oh, look, dealing with agents and, you know, suffer from a bit of buyer fatigue in the end and just... Or perhaps Sean, did Sean help with the with that side of things as well, Aaron, in relation oh, to agents yeah. and so forth? Look, it, it was, it was, you know, I did it myself. It was, uh-huh. it was kind of, you know, I bought that place myself. He was obviously there and, and would come with me, and and you know, he was going to be living there, so yeah. his his opinion mattered significantly in that process. But look, I actually found it really quite good. I um, once I had the deposit, you know, the hardest part is getting that deposit together, and once once I had that together, you know, I went and looked at a few places, not not a whole heap of places, maybe four or five places and this would have been maybe the sixth place that I looked at and I knew straight away and, and that's, you know, we'll obviously get on to the, the place where I'm living at the moment but yeah. when I looked at that for the first time I said to the agent, I'll buy this. You know, I, I kind of, I know straight away if I <laughs> if I like something and if I want something and if it feels like home to me and it doesn't need to be grand, it doesn't need to be, be anything special to anyone else but I just, it's just a feeling that I get and I had it when I first walked into that place in Ramwick and, and had it in the place I'm in now. So it was it was fairly simple actually. I, I liked it, uh, kind of made an offer. I think I then had to make another offer and then it was basically mine, which was Excellent. yeah, amazing. Excellent because I've I mean, I get people knocking on my door looking for property and, and they go they've 
that come in and are just saying, can you just can you just go and find it for me? We've been looking for twelve to twenty four months. Oh, completely. Just, and I can you know I have so many could, friends that have had experiences like that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So after a period of time, five years, you said you decided to sell. Was that during COVID when you sold your property? Yeah, was that challenging was with all the inspections and all that, you know, being restrictions well, in you place? Know what? It, um, it actually wasn't. Um, and, I, and I guess other, you know, the, when Sean and I separated, it was just a really quick, you know, the, the two of us thought, do we wait and maybe sell at the end of the year? But I had a chat to a couple of people who I trust and the market was pretty hot at that stage. This was kind of the end of August mid to the end of August and I just thought, no, nah, let's do it straight away. You know, I think people, you can often delay those things, prolong it and it just, I think, makes it harder for everyone from a, a personal perspective in a lot of different ways. So I honestly got, you know, an agent that I knew and, and liked and he came over and I just said, I want to sell and, and sell straight away pretty much and I think the next week we packed everything up. I moved into a, some service apartments and so we weren't even in there. You know, we got it furnished, um, so it looks really nice. Obviously, we, you know, when you've got a toddler, it doesn't, it doesn't look the best in terms of mm. trying to sell it. So yeah. got all our stuff moved out, got it furnished and, you know, we weren't even there for any of the inspections and it ended up selling prior to auction for, you know, for a great price, a, a record price for the building that we were so, so happy with. And, yeah, it was a really great outcome and a really, you know, I just think it, we couldn't have done done it at a better time in terms of where yeah, the market absolutely, was at. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a great outcome. And, and given, you know, what I, I don't think anyone would argue that going through the separation of a family unit, regardless of the circumstances, is a really challenging time, particularly if you've got kids. So to have that element of it done quickly and, and go really well was, was, yeah, helped a lot. You've been in Sydney for a while and – now you've got an appreciation of the city. What areas do you personally like best here in Sid? Just in terms of going to or homes or... Well, I reckon you're probably closer to work these days. I think you're going the north side, but... The priority being close to work for you, Erin, at the moment? Just a little oh, one. look, it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier. Given I work so much, it's... It's a lot easier for me to be close to work. Absolutely, it's not the be all and end all. Look, I, I would probably, at some stage, and, and in the not not too distant future, I'd love to live on a property somewhere else a little bit and have a bigger place with some land and and commute. You know, when I have to, and, and work remotely when I can, and commute when I have to. So, look, it was never a priority. I guess for me now, the priority, and, and same as for Sean Eliza's father, is is us being close which we are. So he, he wanted to stay in Randwick. So when I was looking for my next location, I, I just wanted it to be close to him so that if she was with him and wanted mum, then we could make that happen quickly. If he wanted to come over and pick something up or just drop in and see her, then he could do that. It was important to both of us that we'd be nice and close. So in terms of, of I guess, locations I love, you know, the eastern suburbs is great because that's, you know, that's where my daughter's dad is and that's kind of where, where we are at the moment. So wherever she is and where she's at preschool is, is where I want to be. The place that we were looking at, at going kind of if things had turned out differently, and um, what's that suburb just over the spit bridge, I think it is, like, it, and it's on the water. Mossman, Balmoral? <laughs> the no, side. not I mean, they would <laughs> no, be no, amazing. No, Balgala or Manly or? No, um, it's, it's kind of, it's before that, Seaforth. Seaforth, yeah, it's just a spit bridge, you turn left and the Seaforth. Yes, and it's beautiful there, and, and there was a stage a couple of years ago where yeah. the houses were going much, cheaper than normal I think because there was they were looking at putting a tunnel in and 
Yeah. I think there was a little bit of, of fear and, and there were some beautiful, gorgeous places that might have been, you know, two-thirds of the price that they would normally be. And we went and had a look at a heap of them and that area always struck me as being beautiful and a really lovely kind of community feel, which I love. But, you know, yeah, I loved Willoughby. I found Willoughby beautiful. I found that it felt very suburban to me and, and it reminded me of Canberra a lot, which was nice when I first made the move. But, mm. I mean, there's so many beautiful parts of Sydney. It's just, it, in fact, I went out to Luddenham, the Luddenham Market the, um, on the weekend with Eliza, which is about 20 minutes past Penrith. Yeah. And that was absolutely beautiful, very rural, yeah. but gorgeous. I mean, the Shire is absolutely stunning. I've got a couple of friends who live in Cronulla, and whenever I go out there, it's, just, it's amazing. We're so spoiled here. There are some beautiful, beautiful is areas. Is that Bo Nose? Is that Bo Nose in the Shire? <laughs> no, I did, I did um, have dinner with his wife a couple of nights ago. I do love Bo. So, Aaron, if I wrote you had a cheque for $5 million, mm-hmm. where are you buying in Sydney? You've mentioned a few oh. suburbs. Are you okay. buying a house, or are you going to split split the house. risk and buy a house and a and an apartment? What are you doing? Oh, that's a great question. Okay, so you got so five million. Five Sixty million. seconds on we the clock. Have a little real rural okay, so pad. I and take the place I've got now and rent it out. So I'll rent out the apartment I've got now, and I would buy. What is that suburb that Ray Hadley lives in that he just Glen Haven, Dural, Glen Haven, or Dural, Dural, yeah, a little five that acre block out there. Dural, I'm five. Beautiful, big, kind of rural <laughs> residence with a pool and not his duck problem. I think the only, so I think the only problem with that, Aaron, I think he, I think he sold it for ten. <laughs> <laughs> no, you hang on. I'll we'll be able to get your land. <laughs> hang on. We might look. We might look at some areas there near the old part of Castle Hill, right? You yeah. Can, well, anywhere. Yeah. I just want somewhere with with. with sport. See, my ideal is not looking at a beach, but it's yeah. looking at. That Australiana land. Maybe a dam. You know. Maybe a dam on five acres near the Castle Hill Country Club. <laughs> Look, you know what? Whatever you can get me for five mil, I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> you simply go to locatenegotiate.com.au. John Gibson's locatenegotiate.com.au. Buyer's agent, seller's advocacy, consultancy and research advice. LocateNegotiate.com.au. You're talking real estate with John Gibson. Welcome back. This is Talking Real Estate with John Gibson. I'm your co-host, Mark Warren. We are talking to Aaron Mullen, our special guest, and a pleasure it is. Gibbo, moving forward. Aaron, you've pretty much focused on sport and news throughout your career. Do you have a passion yeah. for one or the other? That's another great question. I look, I'm 38 now, uh, my 20s and early to mid 30s, absolutely sport, loved it. I've always been obsessed with news and always loved politics and foreign affairs. That's always been in the background, but sport was was number one for a very long time. I feel very blessed to to host football games, to host shows, to travel around the country and, and cover something that gave people so much joy. The past couple of years, that started to really change for me and I guess it's part of you get a bit older, your priorities change, or what what you find. I guess fulfilling changes when you've got a little girl. Weekends are not ideal, mm. to, to be honest, when you want to spend time with your daughter before she starts school and that kind of thing. So sport, of course, is very weekend dominated. So the shift started probably a couple of years ago, and um, whilst it's always been there, it, it just the kind of yearning to, to dig my my teeth into something more serious and, and you know. Uh, more into the politics and news 
just just started to come to the forefront more. So so now now it would be news, absolutely. But I was lucky I was always able to be part of news, covering the sporting news was great. But yeah, look, love both and, and, and I'm just really excited now to be a fan of sport. To actually just be able to watch it not for a job or not host the Australian Open which was such a privilege and so amazing. But now I'm really looking forward to just being a fan and sinking my teeth into into uh, politics, foreign affairs, news of the day. Yeah, Erin, there, there are several women uh, reporting on rugby league now. You are really at the forefront, as you mentioned, um, you know, with the footy show, Sunday sports show, hosting games. Was there pressure com- comment, um, commentating... On a male-dominated sport? Oh, absolutely. Oh, completely. And and there's pressure on everything, and, and so yeah. there should be, to be honest. You're in a position that people would kill to be in. You've been watched by hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, and, you know, you're there to do a job and to do it really bloody well because it's the top of the tree when it comes to sport. So, absolutely. I, there's, there's no pressure that anyone else could ever put on me that was any, any more than the pressure I put on myself, and, and particularly as a as a woman and, and even more so to a greater extent as someone who'd never played at the top level, I felt much more pressure. And so I should, to be honest, because when you're a legend of the game, you can in certain ways rely on that small back in your experience. You're there to, to talk as an expert. Whereas for me, you know, I, I was a host. I needed to know my stuff back to front because if, if a legend gets something wrong, it's funny. If I get something wrong, it's because I don't deserve to be there. I'm a woman. I haven't played. Stay so with that. I did that. feel an immense amount of pressure, <clears throat> but I, I thrive on that. You know, that, that's yeah. I've always worked well under pressure. I, I know I've got perspective. You know, I know how lucky I am. I know uh, that, that I'm in a privileged position. So pressure was never an issue for me. You know, that there were there were elements that were tough, but life is tough for a lot of people. Stay and, there. Know, Stay there, Erin. So John touched on it, and I think I said it in my opener. You're very much a pioneer in this space. And I watched a lot of your work closely, obviously, with a lot of bias um, because there's a, the goat that calls mostly after. Aaron anchors the show, and if he's calling, then I'm watching. And But you found that fine line because I know exactly what you're saying. There are a lot of female hosts and anchors now, but you were – the anchor and able to link and talk to your experts and use those people up. And that's the key in what now, uh, yeah, there are so many female hosts and it's a fine line and it's an art form. I remember Debbie Splain, ABC sideline reporter. I could be wrong here, Gibbo, but I don't think she was allowed into the dressing rooms and so much has changed for her to be taken seriously. I suppose before Erin, Debbie Splain was pretty much uh, the the pioneer. That's going back some time. We were both pretty young at the time, actually. Yeah, mate, you had Debbie, you and then, you know, you had Margie McDonald as well, who, you know, yeah. who wrote for years and years, and there are some incredible women who came before me but maybe didn't get the opportunities that I got. But I think you're right. It, it is, it's a real skill set, and I'm not, you know, you know I'm self-deprecating, but yeah. it's a real fine line and a real skill set because my job, it's not so much opinion-based when it comes to hosting football. I'm surrounded by people who have played 300 games who are immortals or future immortals, the best in the business. It's my job to get the best out of them and to get insights out of them and, and linking through and hosting. And I never pretended to be anything that I wasn't. And, yeah, and I never ship, tried yeah. to. No, absolutely. And, and that was my job. It wasn't my job to be a legend of the game or to have played 300 matches. It's mm. my job to know my sit back to front 
to, to be able to report, to be able to host and to be able to link seamlessly a football coverage show and to be able to know whether Gallon was going to be best to bring in at this stage or whether Billy Slater was best for a comment on a fullback or, or whether Gus Gould was good on this point because I know the arc's up about it, it will be an entertaining you know, debate and then to bring in Freddie because I know that he'll disagree with Gus and that's yeah. my job. It's not to be a legend of the game and I never tried to be and, and you know, it's something, yeah, I'm immensely proud of, of the contribution that I made to rugby league over many, many years and, you know, the thousands of, of young women and, and mothers that, that have approached me and sent me the most beautiful messages over the years, it, it's been a real honour and, and something I am incredibly proud of. Yeah, well done. Well we, done. Well done. Well done. Um, and, of oh, course, if you're talking you. to Freddie, you talk about earthing and walking bare feet and, <laughs> and soaking up the minerals. Fred Wah. Fred Ricky. Okay. Fred <laughs> or Ricky. <laughs> um, now, we'll get, we'll, get, we'll get serious. It's well documented that you were the target of trolls, the disgusting cowards that they are. Um, you, you win the battle over online trolls. You stood up, young lady. Wow. Well done. Um, and you have got thick skin. And I can hear your friend also in Ray Warren saying, if you live in the fishbowl, then you've got to take what comes with it in some regards. Oh, absolutely. And, and that was never an issue for me. And I was always willing to cop everything and anything that I deemed was appropriate and acceptable. And when you're in the public eye, that's a lot. People go online and write that they don't like you. They write, they think you're ugly. They write, they think you're pathetic or you're crap. You know, that's all. It's not nice, but that's part and parcel. Absolutely. Mm. What wasn't acceptable to me was being told that someone was going to rape my two-year-old daughter. Or oh, that they were going to God, no. Oh, no, no, So no, that, that no. is where the line is drawn. And this is what's really important that people understand. My fight against online trolling and bullying was never about people writing online they thought I was a flog. Oh, that is part of being in the public eye. This is about people sending me things. And, and don't, don't get me wrong. I've received millions, 99% of the things that I get sent that get sent to me online or that get written about me are amazing, are lovely, are so supportive and so positive. But the ones that aren't, when they cross the line yeah. and when they go into a space where I start to fear for my safety and my child's safety, that's when it's not okay. And yeah. you get to the stage where even if you don't have social media, look at Anthony Seabold. You know, people oh. might be listening to this and thinking, oh, well, I don't have social media, so why does this matter to me? It matters to everyone. Anthony Seabold did not have social media his life and that of his, his daughter and his family was basically ruined and he's still suffering the implications and, and the effects of what happened to him and what was written online today. I speak to him often. Yeah, well he's done still for standing up there, Aaron. You stood up, kiddo. Absolutely. Absolute. And you know what? you got to. And sometimes you pick your battles and believe me, me I could have picked a thousand over my career. But to be honest, what, there's, not, there's, there's no merit in, in fighting everything just for the sake of it. But when it matters, when it really matters, you stand up and you fight because you make the world a better place for my kids, for your kids, for every Australian. And, and that what is what I hope will be my legacy when, when all this is done. You good done. girl. Well said. Wow. Oh, Have you got an appetite you. for a political career down the track, Erin? <laughs> uh, it was fairly well publicised. Oh, I know. But That's what I'm just, I know. I just we're going uh, over old look, territory here. But like, just... No, not at all. Not at all. Look, no, not, not that old, to be honest. Um, look, I, I genuinely really considered considered it but I think there's there's a lot that I can do outside of politics and I think that I can be more effective in the areas that, that I care about outside of politics at the moment and whilst I was incredibly flattered to, to, to have the interest shown in me from from you know from the Prime Minister and, and other people yeah. I look at my priority right now is being a mum and being the best mum yeah. that I can be and 
I would hate to look back even in two years and think that I had regrets about not spending the time with my daughter that I want to spend. Nothing is more important yes. to me than being a mum. And especially now that our, our lives have changed so much with my family situation and that kind of thing. So to be honest, joining politics now would take me away from her, would be very long hours. And I work long hours, but I can control where yeah. I work those hours and how I work. And in politics, I couldn't. And I wouldn't do it half-assed. I don't do anything half-assed. So for now, definitely not down the track. Maybe, but we'll see. Yeah. Look, Erin, as mentioned, your dad had a very distinguished career, awarded a uh, distinguished ser- uh, service cross as well as a legion of merit by the US government. Um, in 2004, he was deployed for a year to Iraq. Now, am I correct in saying that? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so... Chief of Operations, I think. Yeah, so like... Absolutely, and the war in Iraq, Yeah, so, so Jim, was, yeah, Jim was away for a full year. You didn't see him for a year? Yeah. Yeah, basically, yep. That would have been very tough on you and your mum and the whole family. Yeah, it was, absolutely. I, I look back now and I think I was 14, 15 at the time and, and mum sheltered us from so much of that as she's yeah. always done our whole lives, really. So I think it was much, much harder for her. But we would sit there and watch the news and you'd see mass casualties daily from that war on Iraq. And I think the thing that was really difficult for all of us is that we knew so well what Dad was like. And, and Dad had a reputation from very early days in the Army from when he first went to Duntroon and joined as a young officer. Mm. They used to call him Drugs Molin because not what? because he did drugs, but because, <laughs> I know, it's a, oh, let me explain because that could be a very bad headline for yeah. me. <laughs> when he was at 6 RAR, yeah. there was a pack march that all the soldiers had to do, which was awful. And 6 RAR is one of the big infantry yeah. um, battalions. And there was a pack march they had to do. And when Dad took over, as, as I think it was Lieutenant Colonel at that stage, as the head of 6 RAR, he made them double it. And all the soldiers were going, man, he must be on drugs. Like, what the hell? This is ridiculous. But Dad did it, got at the front and did it. And the one thing about my dad is that he would never ask any soldier to do anything that he did, he would not do himself. And his whole leadership style has always been he leads from the front. He's a soldier, soldier. He's not the kind of officer that you think about, you know, what, what's, what's that series that Monty Python it might have been or, you know, where the officers would be at the back and, yep, go forth, <laughs> men, and they'd be hiding, you know, behind screens at the back. Dad was always we, – we knew the kind of officer that Dad was and that was with his men out in the field, so which Dad was in Iraq for a lot of the time. So that, that increased the anxiety, I guess, that, that we felt when he was away. But this is what he joined the Army for. You know, he was doing what he loved over there. It was very difficult. And once he got over there, they realised how impressive he was. And instead of, you know, just doing the Australian soldiers over there, the US and UK coalition forces made him the chief of operations of the whole war, which was just That's the most incredible, incredible honour for an Australian general to have. And he worked you know, very, very hard for a year and ran the, the election, the democratic election, did so many incredible things in that country and for that country. And he cares deeply about people and very, very proud of him. I can tell that you're bursting with pride. I, I yeah, love watching, I, really am. I, I, I love watching him on television, but also I can see there though, just underneath the bonnet, there's a velvet glove that he may take off from time to time away from the cameras. Um, yeah yeah and mate just quickly his health because he's had a few battles there but he's he's on the mend correct yeah absolutely absolutely he's doing really really well look it's there's ups and downs with any kind of cancer absolutely but he's he's a fighter and it would take a whole hell of a lot more than prostate cancer to 
to bring dad down. Yeah, so it can always it, it can always ring my father for advice and consultation. Oh. One of his twenty three <laughs> medical <laughs> staff. <laughs> With, yeah, I, I should have thought of that. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, he's always good for a consult. I don't have a GP. Oh, I ring him. No. <laughs> Mark's got about half a dozen GPs yeah. on his books yeah. on speed dial. And a counsellor. And a counsellor. Oh, <laughs> no, so we're wrapping up with all the horrific atrocities we're seeing out of the Euro- uh, Ukraine. Um, it'd be fascinating to hear your father's take on that. And I know John's very interested also. Where does it end? I, I know. Yeah, have you got a point of view? What would Dad say? Oh, look, <laughs> I'll, uh, I mean, I talk to Dad most days. Yeah. Uh, as I, I talk to Mum about five times most days, I'm an absolute punish. <laughs> look, it, it's, um, <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a, a really scary situation. And Dad has said publicly and, and says privately to me that, you know, this, this needs to be our wake-up call for this country and, and for our own national security plan and, and you know, the, the fact that we cannot be reliant on any other country. How does it end? No idea. The issue is that Vladimir Putin is, is not a rational human being and, and you cannot rationalise with someone who is irrational. So it, it's absolutely terrifying. This could start World War Three. You know, it, it's, it's scary. Yeah, the whole thing is really scary. And, and what it does is remind Australia, you look at Ukraine at the moment and there is not one foreign soldier that has been sent in to help. Wow. And I think it, it's a really stark reminder that we cannot rely on any other country to defend us if something similar were to occur here. And yes, that's incredibly unlikely. But, you know, to have your own security as beefed up and as strong as possible, and Dad, Dad talks about this national security plan often, that we need to increase it, particularly given the nature of the world at the moment and, and China in particular. So, as they look at okay, Taiwan. What, as they look at Taiwan. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Certainly and can't that, assume that things are going to be – yeah, absolutely. You certainly can't assume that we're going to be uh, well defended and have allies <laughs> if things really do hit, hit the fan. Well, no, John, I'm sure you'd – so, yeah. I'm sure you'd like to – Thank Aaron. And, uh, Aaron, well, we're going to wind it up, I think. Yeah, absolutely we are. Aaron, I've got to appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. Such been, a pleasure. Thank been, you so much a, for having me, guys. I really enjoyed listener. it. So thanks for the chat. There she is, a, a shining star, very talented, very quirky, um, a master of self-deprecating humour and very, very versatile. Aaron Molan, thanks for being a part of Locate Negotiate, talking real estate with John Gibson. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you so much, Legends. Really appreciate it. You guys take care. There she is. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, covering all the areas. Uh, a great chat with Erin Molan. Oh, she was great. Yeah. Nothing was off the table. Very open and honest. Real good listen. And if you touch on certain points, then uh, there's a velvet glove there that she can take off as well. Yeah, absolutely. Erin Molan, our special guest, and talking real estate with John Gibson. I'm Mark Warren. Until next time, Gibbo. Look forward to it, Mark. It's bye for now.